Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Just to try to uh, cover all the bases of uh, various uh, things that are happening uh, in the world, you know, we want an update on the California wildfires. This is an area, of course, of intense interest uh, for the wine industry. And here to help us understand what's going on is Stephen Ranakliev. He is the Global Beverages Strategist and Food and Agribusiness Research and Advisory Group for Rabobank International, major uh, Dutch lender lender to the agriculture industry. Stephen, thanks for coming into our uh, studios here. Just give us an update on what you know right now about uh, wine cultivation production. Uh, the harvest was almost complete, I believe, in uh, Napa and Sonoma. That's correct. That's correct. So it's it's still very much a fluid situation. And and you know one of the questions that we get asked often is you know what will this mean for overall California wine production? And and really, you know the 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 short answer is probably not that much in terms of volume, right? Because when you look at Napa and Sonoma, you're talking about ten percent of of overall California wine production. And as you said, probably 80 to 90% of that was already harvested. So in terms of overall volume, probably doesn't mean much. In terms of disruption to the industry, it's enormous. It's, it's, it's enormous impact. And, you know, first off, let's, I, I think you would share in this, let's send our condolences to, to the families of 41 people that, that lost their lives, to the countless people that lost homes and businesses. It's, it's a tremendous disruption to the industry mostly because of what it's meant for for tourism and disruption to operations in one of the most prestigious regions in all of California, or the most prestigious regions in all of California. Well, let's also talk about future production, because just because there's been everything, uh, or mostly uh, the, the vineyards had been already harvested, doesn't mean that the damage couldn't continue into next year. Is there any talk about that? There is some concern, and, and, and there will be small pieces of vineyards that will see some some some... Uh, long-term impact on production. But for the most part, uh, vines tend to be fairly resilient. I think they'll, they'll come back. The, the, the big impact is going to be, what does this mean for the 2017 vintage, which was looking really good. Uh, there's concern, you know, most of what was out there had been harvested. The challenge is that, you know, it's the, the, the 10% that hadn't been harvested is Cabernet Sauvignon, and that's, you know, the most valuable. When you think of the U.S. wine industry, the U.S. wine market, the typical consumer, the typical wine sold in the market sells for under $8 a bottle. Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon sold direct to consumer averages around $100 a bottle. So it's this is the most premium wine grape in the market, and that's what's out there potentially being affected by smoke taint. Okay, now uh, this is, the, we were talking about California. Now I want to get your uh, thoughts on France, Italy, and Spain, because they have not had a good year. That's been a, you know, when you talk about overall volume and people ask me what, you know, what are the, what does the California wildfires mean for, for consumption globally, their volume, not much. France, Italy, and Spain, that's really a, a horrendous Terrible situation. weather. Terrible weather. You had, you had frost in the spring, you had drought, you had extreme temperatures in the summer, hail, all of that. And, and it really hit all three of them. We've seen years in the past when any single one of those might have had an off year, but never where you've seen 
all three of them down so much at the same time. And, you know, again, you're going back to now the smallest vintage that we've seen in over 50 years. So this is, you know, this will really weigh on wine consumption globally. Uh, We've seen, you know, with that, to to kind of put it in perspective, the decline that we've seen versus last year in production globally because of those three countries that make up half of all wine production, that decline represents something like 10% of typical uh, global wine consumption in a year. So something's going to have to give globally, and wine producers and the industry will look for levers to to try to mitigate the effects of that, but there will be impacts that will reverberate kind of globally in wine consumption because of it. Well, the events this year don't make me want to have, uh, don't reduce my desire to have a drink. It's not that (laughs) consumption is necessarily going to go down. Uh, It's just that prices could go up, right? I mean, could we see a real increase in prices, especially as millennials evidently love wine and are drinking lots of it? Absolutely. And uh, thank God for millennials, right? Um, (laughs) Thank God for wine. Let's forget the millennials. Come on. Yeah, I think, you know, some of the, the, the price increases as we've looked at it, I think we expect that, you know, much of the price increases we'll see in, in the very low end segments of the European wine market, right? The, the stuff that gets drunk for, you know, a, a, a euro or two or a liter, that's where you'll see it. You will see some of the, the price increases passed on, for, you know, in the, in the higher end stuff like the, the Bordeaux and the Riojas, but they have a little bit more of a cushion in terms of margin to, to, to take on that price increase. Just quickly, as a big lender to the agriculture industry and to the wine industry, um, collateral is what grows on the vines, right, and the land. Uh, is it going to change lending patterns? I, I don't think so, so far. When you, when you think of the, um, the, the wildfires, what it's done, it, it's been the, it's been, Tremendous the impact, but it's it's really been when you look at the number of wineries in Napa, the yeah. 500 wineries. It was maybe 15 that were affected. The vineyards are mostly okay. Uh, it's really more the the destruction of interruption of operations, interruption of tourism, which yeah. has become right. really the driver of of route to market for for a lot of these wineries. Stephen Renekliev, thank you so much for joining us, global beverages strategist in food and agribusiness research and advisory for Rabobank International. He is their in-house wine drinker. I want to turn our attention to one tech company that is sitting very pretty today. I'm talking about Twitter. Shares up 14.5% after releasing earnings uh, that beat analyst estimates and showed some strength in their user uh, rates. And I want to bring in Jatendra Wurl, global internet and consumer electronics analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, to talk about uh, what kind of underpinned the success here that Twitter unveiled. So Jatendra, just how good were the earnings today? Quarterly expectations were very low, actually, and last quarter we saw a, a deceleration in some user momentum, but this quarter they just showed that uh, the momentum has come back. So a combination of continued cost cuts, which, ha- which is helping profitability, they're making product changes, and the numbers are showing that uh, these seem to be working. Well, what isn't working? What needs to be fixed? 
So basically, if you look at the growth rate right now, it's still, you know, we're talking about 4% um, uh, YOI growth rate in users. I mean, we have not seen a big secular shift like people coming back to Twitter at the same pace as uh, peers are experiencing. So that's not working yet, but uh, the product changes that they've done in terms of simplifying it and notification, things like that, is showing that these changes can drive engagement. What about profitability? What about advertising? Did they show that they were able to monetize more effectively the audience that it has? Now, that's a big question, right? So first step was to sort of uh, resurrect the user growth, bring in more users on board, and then go convince advertisers. So they are doing a good job convincing investors right now. Now they have to use that momentum to convince advertisers to shift ad budgets here. But as far as profitability is concerned, I mean, uh, they have done a good job in terms of like cost cuts and getting the margins up. So that should continue and it's working in their favor. Also, one thing to remember is uh, the expectation for next year and next to next year are very low, you know, single digits. And they're coming from this uh, 2017 comparison, which is negative. Uh, so if they continue this momentum, uh, I think, you know, at least uh, in the face of low expectations, uh, they could they could see uh, better results. Jitendra, can we uh, can we just move a little bit uh, to the future and uh, get your thoughts on Alphabet? Uh, give us a preview of what uh, what analysts are going to be looking for. Sure. So the underlying demand here uh, coming mostly from mobile search uh, and YouTube is pretty strong. Um, in fact, we saw that uh, last quarter as well. They recorded the high, uh, the highest growth in paid clicks. Uh, what would be interesting to see is a traffic acquisition cost, which made them sort of miss revenues a little last quarter. Uh, so the cost that they pay to distribution partners, including Apple, uh, and more and more mobile search ad basically contribution from mobile search increasing also increases the traffic acquisition cost. So the top line expectation is strong. The end market demand is strong. There will be a keen eye on how these costs are faring, especially in light of what we see, what we saw last quarter. Uh, and not to give everyone whiplash, but I also want to get a, a look ahead to Amazon.com. They're reporting earnings at 4.01 today, uh, p.m. Yeah. Wall Street time. And uh, I am very curious to see how much they're sacrificing their margins to gain a competitive edge. What are you looking for? Yeah, uh, don't be surprised if they miss on the bottom line. I mean, expenses ramp is expected. Uh, they are increasing exp uh, expenses on AWS as content spending and with Whole Foods acquisition integration, that should also uh, go up. But if you look at the third quarter with Amazon Prime Day, with uh, contribution from Whole Foods and continued growth in AWS, they should be fine. The guidance for next quarter is going to be very important from a revenue standpoint because we are kind of flying blind right now. It's the first full quarter of Whole Foods integration. So we need to see what uh, sort of impact the price cuts uh, and traffic increase has had on the net revenue for Amazon. But all in all, the end market demand is strong uh, on all fronts. Jitendra, if you pull out Amazon Web Services from Amazon, what kind of company is it? Uh, it's uh, not a profitable company. So they have seen, actually, profit margins have been uh, rising in North America, but beyond that, uh, it's loss-making. So the idea here is to sort of reach scale in their prime and FBA cycle internationally so that they can replicate what they're doing here in North America. But it'll take time. And with the Whole Foods push, uh, things are going to get uh, even more volatile in terms of spending. So don't expect AWX, AWS. Amazon to, uh, you know, secularly grow their profits, but it's expected because revenue growth has been uh, pretty strong in light of these expenses.
Any chance that investors will call for Amazon to spin off AWS into a separate business? Uh, not at the moment. I mean, I, uh, right now, AWS is the sort of uh, uh, the profit driver for the company, but uh, uh, still, it, 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 the, the revenue contribution is very low. Profit contribution is high. It actually plugs into a lot of other services that Amazon is providing, you know, your Alexa, uh, your content spending that they're doing. So AWS is pretty plugged into the whole Amazon ecosystem, including logistics. So I don't see uh, a reason why that should be done to begin with. Jitendra, I'm curious how much information we'll get on uh, how their acquisition with Whole Foods uh, of Whole Foods has mm -hmm. been going, you know, and kind of where they're thinking. Because I know that it's just completely destroyed uh, the stocks of a lot of grocery chains out there as people yeah. start to gird yeah. for whatever disruption they have planned. What do you expect to learn? So uh, they'll. Basically, the revenue guidance should actually help us understand the run rate that Whole Foods was doing as a standalone company. Is it increasing or decreasing? Uh, if it's decreasing, it's probably coming from the price cuts that they're doing. If it's increasing, then the traffic uh, that they're getting because of this acquisition is actually outpacing those price cuts. So I, I guess it's not the amount of impact, but the pace of impact. That's what, what that's what's going to be most important. So if they guide higher than uh, what the street is expecting right now, I mean, we could expect um, uh, that negative effect on others to uh, continue. Do you expect any details at all about moving into other businesses, such as uh, the prescription drug delivery business or indeed even the banking industry? Not much. Uh, just uh, some color maybe, but it's super early days uh, in, in, in on those regards. And we have to keep in mind that Whole Food acquisition is targeting a $800 billion plus market, and they have the last mile delivery problem still to be solved and optimized. So until those things are uh, done, I, I don't see like you know uh, any color on a big revenue contribution uh, coming from you know any of these other uh, experimentation phase that thing that they're doing right now. So it's a long game that they're playing on those fronts. I'm wondering about regulatory pressure. The idea mm -hmm. that an increasing number of regulators, both in Europe and the U.S., are starting to question uh, yeah. sort of the incredible size and, and pricing power of Amazon. And, you know, do you expect them to address that or at least nod to that as a potential risk? It is a potential risk, and uh, especially in EU, we have, we have been seeing uh, more and more of those examples. Uh, but one thing to keep in mind is with Amazon, a big chunk of their revenue is driven by third-party services, third-party sellers uh, on their platform. So it's not Amazon selling directly. It's you know other businesses uh, selling through Amazon. So that uh, sort of like dilutes the uh, monopolistic sort of argument a bit. But as far as uh, yeah, examples we have seen in EU, uh, those risks will linger, not just for like next couple of quarters, but next couple of years, given, you know, how fast they're growing. And um, the end market still is much, much bigger. But um, uh, that will be an ongoing sort of argument, if you may. We are uh, awaiting uh, details and uh, comments from uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan having to do with uh, the uh, budget uh, resolution that was just recently passed. We'll be bringing that to you live. Uh, we're speaking with Jitendra Warl. He is our global internet and consumer electronics analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Uh, Jitendra, you know, I, I keep thinking about what you just said, having to do with these third-party sellers that use Amazon basically for all the fulfillment needs. Uh, needs. Yeah. But aren't states, I mean, I know that, for example, a state of Massachusetts has asked for a list of those mm -hmm. third-party sellers uh, because yeah. right now they're not paying sales tax. 
Yeah, so they have left it on the sellers, uh, the onus of collecting the sales tax when it comes to third parties and, you know, it varies state by state. So there there are some states where you're seeing uh, more scrutiny on that end. But, you know, in the end, if there is a widespread change in terms of uh, tax collection, I think it will uh, basically be normalized by the volume growth that these third-party sellers are seeing. Because yeah, you have to keep in mind that when uh, third-party sellers go on FBA program, they get exposed to prime members. And prime members are continuing to increase, not just in numbers, but the amount of money that they're spending uh, on, uh, on, on Amazon. So basically, that exposure, that volume that they're getting should help uh, them offset in, in an instance where uh, the sales tax need to be enforced. Just sort of zooming out a little bit because today is such a big uh, Fang tech yeah. stock day with uh, you know both Google and or Alphabet. I'm sorry, uh, and Amazon reporting after earnings today, and we got earn, uh, Twitter's already. I'm wondering, you know, you're saying with Twitter there were really low expectations going into this, and they exceeded them. Uh, expectations are still pretty high for Alphabet and Amazon. That do you think will uh, do you think that will create a negative surprise uh, potential that, that the market's not prepared for? The, so we have to take both the cases uh, separately. So with Alphabet, the negative surprise potential could come from these traffic acquisition costs and ad pricing that uh, we talked about. Because as more ad dollars come from mobile, they have to pay the distribution network uh, to get that. And that did sort of cause a spur last time. Uh, if you remember, there was a confusion when Google reported in terms of what they missed and what they what they beat because of this tax. So that issue could surface again with Alphabet. With Amazon, it, like I said, with Whole Foods contribution, uh, we are sort of flying in the dark uh, here in terms of what the contribution is going to be. So any negative surprise in terms of, you know, the expectation was Whole Foods will maintain its revenue run rate that it had before Amazon bought it. If that expectation is much lower, then you could see some surprise on the downside. Thank you so much for joining us. Jitendra Wurrall, Global Internet and Consumer Electronics Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, we'd like to learn more about the European Central Bank as they seem to have decided to slow the pace of their quantitative easing program, but they are uh, extending the program by nine months. Here to tell us more in detail is Maxime Spahi, our Euro Area Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And you can follow Maxime at, uh, on Twitter at MXSBA. All right, MXSBA, tell me about the uh, European Central Bank and, and what is this plan about extending uh, the quantitative easing program? Yes, good morning from from London. So the, the ECB decided today to go with the consensus. So that, I mean, that means they extended the QE program by nine months, but they cut uh, the monthly pace of purchases uh, from 60 to 30 starting in, in January. Most importantly is that Draghi said during the press conference that there won't be no sudden stop to the QE program. So he basically hinted at further extension of the QE program. He basically said that September was probably not going to be the end date of the QE program. And that's in itself is a very dovish statement. Well, uh, Maxime, I was looking at some analyst notes after the announcement by the ECB earlier today, and they were saying, you know, 
Yes, it's 30 billion euros of uh, asset purchases, but it's actually going to be 45 billion euros because they're going to be reinvesting the proceeds of uh, notes that they currently have. Uh, Just to give you a sense of how this has been received, the two-year German bond yield plummeted. It went back down to uh, negative uh, 0.725%. I mean, this just means that it's it's, going to be QE forever in the European Union, no? Yeah, the, the, that's the whole debate about the, the stock and the flow of QE. And Mario Draghi said uh, uh, very specifically today, they actually published a press release on, on the details of this, uh, that they were going to reinvest uh, uh, all the, the bonds that come to maturity. And so basically that they were going to be in the markets for a long time, even after stopping the purchase. He hasn't mentioned that, but one day they will have to stop. We think it's going to be in 2019, early 2019. After that, the huge stock of purchases will be reinvested just like the Fed did for a long time, yes. Is there any sense of when uh, the European Central Bank may start to raise the deposit rate, or is that just completely off the table at this point? So it's it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But if you add uh, up the, the nine months extension of today, uh, the fact that he said there was going to be no sudden stop, that, so that QE is going to be uh, is going to be extended after September. And if you uh, also add to that the unchanged forward guidance, who still promises that the, the rates are going to stay at the current levels for an extended period of time, and I quote, well past the QE horizon. If you add everything up, that means they're going to have to wait until 2019. We think end 2019 to start hiking rates again. And if you think about it, Mario Draghi is going to leave the ECB in October 2019. So there's actually a high chance now that he's going to leave after eight years at the ECB head without ever having to hike uh, rates. Maxime, it, it, the, uh, the euro area, the eurozone economy is uh, not homogeneous and you have the enviable task of uh, being the euro area economist. So I'm wondering if you could describe uh, which countries and, w- and which economies have benefited the most from the actions of the ECB? Well, if you look just at the pure composition of QE, um, they, the QE is mostly oriented towards Germany because that's a, a large economy. And the ECB implements the purchases according to its capital keys. That means how much the weight of each, each country in the economy. Uh, so around 25% of QE purchases are going to Germany. So Germany is probably the, most, um, the one that benefits the most from it. On the other hand, you can also look at what's going on in Spain and in Italy and the fact that the growth rate is accelerating in these countries, that unemployment is going down, that Financial conditions are now less tight than before. Uh, That's all to put on the ECB's credit. So everybody is benefiting from it, just not to the same extent. You know, I find it interesting that the yield curve in Germany is steepening on this. In other words, people expect that this will allow inflation to pick up over the longer term uh, much more than it would otherwise. Are people pretty uh, bullish in this? And are people saying, you know what, this is actually going to bleed into the banks and and provide a better uh, backdrop for them? Or are people uh, raising alarm and saying that the longer this goes on, uh, the more fragile the economy becomes? I mean, where's sentiment right now? Well, I think, I think what, what the market is looking at right now, if you look at the euro, uh, it's also reacting. It's also going down against the dollar after this dovish uh, press conference. Uh, but I think the market is reacting to the fact that the ECB is going to stay for longer, that the rate hike won't happen anytime soon. But also to the fact that Mario Draghi seemed to be very pleased by the way the economy was going. Growth is, is strong. We have unemployment continuing to go down. There's a good momentum in the region. The only problem, again, is that inflation is not following. We have a V-shaped 
profile of inflation, meaning that it's going to go down over the next months before it starts uh, rising again. And uh, all this obviously is coming into investors' anticipations, and uh, the the um, uh, yield curve obviously reflects that, especially Germany, which is the main uh, eurozone assets uh, to buy in the market. Real quick, any commentary on the ECB's purchase of corporate debt? Uh, no, they said they didn't discuss the composition today, which is a bit surprising, to be honest, because you would expect them to at least uh, address that issue. Uh, so they're going to uh, continue buying them and probably not change any parameters anytime soon um, uh, from the QE program. Uh, Max Meisbahi, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure speaking with you. Max Meisbahi, Euro Area Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from London. And I think back to what Ray Dalio said on Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. He said, the longer this goes on, the harder it will be for such banks to taper as yields go up and as uh, the economies start to accelerate. Something to keep in mind. Right now, let's focus on uh, the new technology and uh, a new generation of automobile from Audi. Joining us is uh, Scott Keo. He is the president of Audi of America, and he joins us in our studio. Scott, thanks for being here. Thank you, Pat. Um, Pleasure. Uh, let me see if I can just do this in three words. Long, low, and wide. Would that be a good description of, of the new generation, A7? Absolutely textbook. Absolutely right. textbook. You want to make something beautiful in the automotive business, that's generally what you do. And Why did you do that? Because you've, you've really, you've yeah. changed the shape of yeah. the automobile. We'll get yeah. to the cockpit in a second, yeah. but the, the exterior, the shape yeah. has changed. It has. You know, this is our second generation of the A7. And when we launched the first generation car, people sort of said, we're crazy. It was a sport back design. It wasn't your classic three box sedan. And we launched it and the market loved it. Our market share went up. Of course, in that segment, the market share went up three or four points. This is now the second generation of the car, and what we have is an all-new head of design, a gentleman by the name of Mark Lita, and uh, you know his real premise is to make beautiful cars. And you see it in how we stretched the car out a little bit and lowered it. But even if you go back to Da Vinci, there is this thing of perfect proportions. And in automobiles, it's long, low, and wide. And if you look at beautiful cars, that's almost always what they are. And the A7 is one of those. It's simple. <laughs> Scott, I want to talk about um, something that is beautiful in another way. People are uh, seeing electric vehicles as being the future of uh, cars and, and the future of profitability and the future of uh, clean electricity. And I'm wondering, when do you see them actually being profitable? We really haven't seen uh, either the demand for them uh, from the American public nor the profitability for the car companies. Where do, where do you see this going? Well, Lisa, look, I, I think you are right. Yeah, you have to walk a fine line, uh, obviously, between compliance and the standards and the greenhouse gas emissions. But of course, at the end of the day, a customer does not walk into a showroom saying, how can I help the automotive industry hit their targets? You need a consumer product that a customer loves, enjoys, and wants to pay for. But look, I'm an optimist. And the reason I'm optimist is uh, if you look at Audi's demographic, they are affluent, educated, and they believe and want new technologies. And the simple thing I see when I drive Audi's prototype electric cars, which will be launching in 2019, the very simple thing is you feel like you're driving the future. And I think that's something that's going to work. I think the other point, you know, not to go on too long, is I have a very simple criteria. There's 26 million luxury cars navigating America right now. And yearly, we sell retail about 1.4 million across the industry. 
that tells me there's the need for some new stimulus. And I think this is the new stimulus, so I'm an optimist. Where the break-even on profitability, as you know, it's going to be a couple of years. We need to get more scale, as you know, and costs need to continue to come down. All right. So what cost do you think electric vehicles have to be sold at uh, in order to generate interest from a broader swath of public? Uh, And when, specifically the year, do you expect electric vehicles to truly take off in the U.S.? Look, the year they're going to take off for Audi is going to be 2019 because that's the year we're launching our first electric car. So from an Audi perspective, uh, you know, I think we did the smart thing. We placed the car right in the sweet spot of the luxury segment. I think what a lot of people have done is they have sort of made what I will call a compliance car. And at the end of the day, you have to make a beautiful car. So we've made an SUV. It's a C-segment SUV, which is the second largest segment uh, in luxury. And so consumers are going to desire this, and that's when it's going to start to go. Now, in terms of percentages, what we've announced, I can see Audi doing 25 to 30% of its total business by 2025 being electric. I think that's fair. I think that's reasonable. And I think we can get that done. Uh, before we get to the future, uh, I just want to mention the past, and uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with the program Night Rider. Remember Night Rider? I remember. Yeah. I remember a kit booging around. I do. Yeah. Okay. So um, <laughs> I gotta say that the, the current uh, updated version reminded me of Night Rider because of the lights. Uh, you can actually do a light show. It's LED laser lights uh, with the uh, Audi A7. What What are you doing putting laser lights on the car? Ah, uh, because it's cool. It's really cool. Uh, no, and who make? Uh, I'll, I'll give you an engineering. I'll give you an engineering reason okay. as well. But uh, <laughs> look, I think if you look at Audi, we've sort of been the innovators of lights. We were the first to do LEDs, and actually, LEDs started in the racetrack with our uh, with our prototype uh, race cars in Le Mans. And then from LEDs, we put them on our passenger cars. We put them on the R8 first, and now it's on every single Audi. And if you look at the industry. Every single car has LED lights now, and usually they don't call them LED lights, they call them Audi lights because it's something we innovated. The next phase we feel of LEDs is uh, laser lights. Now we have them on a few hundred R8s today, and it's simple. You get better visibility to look out and you get a more consistent light. And I think this is something that will become a standard, but of course we need to get the cost right. It's gonna take a little bit of time. But that's the first thing everyone said when we launched LEDs. They said, no way, and now it's an industry standard. So you gotta roll the dice and take some risk on innovation. Scott Keogh, thank you so much for joining us and for the honesty. Why do you have them? Because they're cool. Uh, (laughs) Scott Keogh, president of Audi of America Incorporated based in uh, Herndon, Virginia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.